Well, guess what, Beth? You get to get preached to today. <laughs> I remembered for a change, too. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, um, the 24th, and the, really today is the 25th chapter we'll be looking at. As I said a couple of weeks ago, um, and announced this morning in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll be launching the 3D Disciple kind of faith journey, um, uh, kind of working through what uh, our task in developing, displaying, and deploying disciples into the world, and we'll kind of work and uh, unveil or unpack all that in the coming weeks and over time. Um, at this time, though, we're kind of laying some foundational work for that. And um, so our, our first part of that was just really the, the basic gospel message that uh, God is love. So, oh. See, now I forgot. Are you going to hand them out, Ben? We have special notes. We were, we're running apart. We're, we're working on it. So if you're a kid... We have kid notes this day. So we wanted to give those out. You want to pass them out? Jared, you want to help? The two biggest kids I got in the church. <laughs> so um, we have been working, so, so you know what that's all about. We've been working, again, on an adult version of 3D Disciples, um, but we also want a kid's version of that to go along with our adult version so that this is kind of across the entire church family. A little of something for everybody, and so we're working on developing what that's going to look like, and so this is kind of our uh, start on trying to figure out how we're going to have the, the 3D Disciples Kids version, or 3D Kids, I think is what we're going to call it. So thank you, Ben, and thank you, Brianna, for reminding me about that. All right, so back to, to what we're kind of doing. So we, we started off a couple weeks ago talking about this foundational, you know, why are we going to focus on discipleship? Why are we going to make such a big deal about being disciples and being able to make disciples and so forth? Is Well, we started off with this Christian message, the, the primary Christmas message. God loves you, that you're loved by God. This is our motivation. This is, this is the story we want to give out to the world, that they are loved by God. Um, last week we started looking at um, the idea of Jesus' return, and, and, and that's our motivation, that, that God's coming back, and there's certain things he wants us to do, um, and, and too often when we proclaim the message that God loves you, um, and we, we encourage people to give their life to Christ, to, to take Jesus in their heart, or all these different ways we've said it, be born again, be converted, you know, get saved, um, we have made that the kind of be-all, end-all of what Christianity is, right? You got saved, good, and now we're done. You know, I got saved, now I'm done. And, and the truth of the matter is we've too often made that the ultimate goal is get people saved, and once they're saved, we, we've, we've, we've done what we need to do, and, and that's it. Um, and so we've been answering this question as we think about going into our future and making disciples, I'm saved, so now what? And it's based on this understanding that God hasn't just God hasn't saved us just to save us. That there's something much bigger in God's plan of salvation for the saved than just for them to be saved. 
Um, if that's all it was, you know, we could have just jumped to that kind of thing. But that God is using us. And so in, in uh, Matthew 24 and 25, uh, Jesus starts a disciple. He kind of provokes a, disciple, a, a conversation with the disciples about his return, about the end of time. And, and so we looked in 24 last week, and we kind of did a walk through, through Matthew 24. Uh, the end is coming. Jesus kind of talks about the temple. And he said, there's coming a time when these won't be standing on each other. And so the disciples, like, come to him privately and say, well, tell us when this is going to happen. You know, if, if this cataclysmic event, tell us what's the sign <coughs> of your return is actually what they ask him. Uh, so he gives them a number of signs and conditions, wars and rumors of war, global destruction, all earthquakes and all that kind of stuff. And we talked about how, you know, that's kind of phase one and that's always been. Then he kind of talks about phase two when he talks about the persecution of Christians, the falling away of Christians, and the spreading of the gospel of the world. And we looked how there's signs or there's, there's evidence that that second phase, that the persecution, that right now there's more Christians in persecution. Christianity is the number one persecuted religion in all the world. Uh, that there is, uh, uh, we're at least on the beginning of a what appears to be a, a, a time of apostasy, a time of falling away from Christianity, um, that many people who once took the name, and, and it's been shocking over the last couple of years of people who we would call prominent Christians, you know, people who had large ministries and who had large influence in the Christian world have now denounced their faith. And uh, so there's a, a evidence of this falling away or people's love growing cold. We see that happening. And just how we were even talking with someone this morning about how the spreading of the gospel around the world is, is something we try to measure, but we're not the one who counts, right? God is the one who's measuring that and, and, and how that all comes to play. Then he, so in, in response to that coming, he, he gives three teachings. He says, you need to be ready. You, you don't know when it's going to happen, so you need to be ready. Um, he says, you need to be working. You need to be the good and faithful servant who, whose master finds him doing his job when he arrives. And you need to be aware that there's eternal consequences. That there's this place called the, 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 where, where the unfaithful are thrown, the place of weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And, and that, that what we do isn't insignificant. That we need to be aware of the eternal consequences about what's at stake here. That this isn't just, you know getting a, a gold star at the end of, of life. This is about eternal uh, consequences. And so that was his teaching. And then I pointed out how chapter 25, Matthew 25, what we're going to look at today, mirrors these teaching. He, he comes back right after teaching all those things, and he gives three parables. And each of those parables relates to one of the teachings. The, his teaching to be ready, he tells the parable of the ten virgins or the ten maidens or the ten bridesmaids. Um, we're going to talk about that a little bit. To the be working, he gives the parable of the talents. And to the be aware, he gives a parable of the sheep and the goats. And each one of these parables parallel the teaching he had taught in the chapter before. And so that's what we're going to dig into. So this is where we th left things at last week. We, we spent our time really learning last week, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the action this week. But the end is coming, and there is evidence that it's nearing. So we should be ready, be working, and be aware. And that's kind of the heart of what we want to be about. So let's dig into these, these, uh, these uh, parables. Thank you. Matthew 25. 
So I, I, the first one is Matthew 25, verses 1 through 3, the, the story or the parable of the ten virgins, the ten maidens. Uh, this is the parable to be ready. So uh, if you want to kind of follow along, I'm not going to read the whole thing there, just kind of give you the story. The story, he starts off, then the kingdom of heaven <coughs> will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So in first century, the, the way weddings took place there, uh, the bridegroom, he'd start off at his house and he would travel to the, to the bride's house. He'd go through town and go to the bride's house. He'd be welcomed into her house and the, and the ceremony, the marriage would take place in her house. Um, after that, the couple would then leave and go back to his house where there'd be this big feast and this big party. Um, and so a lot of times this would happen. This would, by the time they left and went back to his house for the reception, for the banquet, the, the, the wedding feast, um, it would be dark. And, and there would be these group, this, these bridesmaids who would wait outside the house with lanterns. And, and their whole job was that when the, when the groom started to show up to his house, they'd light their lights and they'd stretch out and there'd be like this big welcoming procession, welcoming the bridegroom back home with his bride and enter into the feast <coughs> and, and how beautiful this was and this great big celebration was about to take place. Well, this is the story that's kind of going on here. And these, these maidens are, are waiting for the bridegroom to, to show back up at the house so they can go in and have this feast. And they have their lamps and they're, they're going to you know, light them and they're going to be this big processional and welcome them in. Well, the story goes that there's five of these maidens who are really wise and, and they know and it, it wasn't it wasn't uncommon for, you know, the wedding to take a little bit longer. Uh, we don't understand that because there were some negotiations that had to happen in those weddings. You know, the, the bride, the groom and the father had to make final decisions about the diary. And was that the right cause? And he's like, well, you know what? I, she really is pretty. I think I want one more camel. You know, and, and so there'd be this whole, that might delay it, the, 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 you know, the, the rabbi might got a little long-winded. Or, so delays weren't uncommon, so the, the maids had to wait for him to show up and for everything to take place on the, on the other side of the ceremony. Well, five of these ladies were smart. They brought some extra oil to put in their lamps. So they knew that this was common, they knew that this was happening, so they showed up prepared to, to wait for a while. Well, five of them... They weren't so smart, or they weren't so prepared. And, and so they, they fall asleep. Obviously, the negotiations or the ceremony or something delayed the bridegroom's return. And, and so they kind of fall asleep, and all of a sudden, now here he comes. And so they wake up, and they start trimming their lamps and lighting them and getting ready. And <coughs> the five foolish uh, maidens go, wait, we don't have any oil. Give us some of yours. And they're like, no, if we give you ours, we won't have enough. You need to go wake up an oil dealer and get some by your own and, and come back. And, and so they leave. Well, while they're gone, the groom shows up. He takes everybody into his house for the feast. The party begins. They lock the door. And the foolish maidens show up and they begin knocking on the door and say, okay, we're here. And the groom says, it's too late. You, you, you missed, you missed my arrival, you know, and now you're locked out. And the party's on the inside, and you're on the outside. Now, interestingly about these parables is all of them have this kind of idea about the return or a coming together. In this one, it's the bridegroom. The groom is showing up to the scene. 
as you know, this isn't a really veiled parable. There's over and over um, in the scripture or, or several other places, Jesus is presented to be the bridegroom who's coming back to get his wife, to get his bride, the church. You know, the, that this is a common theme about Jesus being the bridegroom. And, and so there's a couple of things we learn in this be ready thing. First of all, I, I have a good news for you. Here's the countdown clock for Jesus' return. So that clearly tells you when he's coming back. Set your watch by it. There you go, right? And that's really kind of the point of what Jesus is teaching in that be ready. He goes, you don't know when this is going to happen, so you need to be ready all the time. Always be ready. You need to be like the, the wise maidens who were prepared to, to be there when the groom showed up because nobody knows when he's coming. <clears throat> it's interesting. There's a verse in, uh, I think it's in 1 Peter or 2 Peter, talks about that Jesus is uh, um, lazy, that he's, that he's not showing up when he wants to. And, and it goes on to tell us that he's not delayed. He's not slow about fulfilling his promises. He, he's waiting. He, he's, he's taking his time so that many people have the chance to get right with him, so that many people have to get saved, that he's being patient. He's not delayed. And maybe, maybe the, the bridegroom was just taking his time on purpose. He was being patient uh, to give them a chance to be ready. One of the things, so one of the really sad things we learned from this parable is you got one chance. You got one chance. Now, I've heard this message a lot, and, and we'll talk about it. And, and there is a sense in which God is the God of second chances, and third chances, and fourth chances, and fifth chances, and sixth chances, and all those different chances. There's a sense that God is the God of second chances. But make no mistake, He's really the God of one chance. You got one chance to get things right with God. And that's called life. However long that is. Now you might have multiple opportunities in that life. But once life's over, that's your chance. And so a lot of people want to count on the second and third and fourth and fifth chance. And they never know like this, like the return of uh, the countdown clock of Jesus' return. That's also the countdown clock for the end of your own personal life. None of us know when that is either. Right? Uh, we, you know, I had a wreck a few weeks ago that one of those nice furry little Bambies that we all love so much tried to take me out, <laughs> right? And if about three, if I'd have been about three seconds faster than I was, that clock might've been over for me and it's a real chance that could have happened. And we don't know those things. So make no mistake. You got one chance for the bride when the groom shows up to be ready for him. And that's called life. And so what is our lesson? What actions? Well, we need to take personal responsibility to be prepared for Jesus' return. That's really the story of the, ten, of the ten maidens, right? You need to be ready. You need to see that you got what you need. <laughs> you got the supplies you need. Take personal responsibility. The five of them did. They made sure they had their, their lamps. They made sure they had the oil. And five didn't. And they turn to the ones who did and say, well, give us some of yours. And I can't. This is what I need. 
And we need to take personal responsibility to make sure we're prepared for Jesus' return. So I kind of want to quickly walk through how you do that. Well, how do, how do I prepare for this? How do I personally make sure I'm prepared? One, do you or do I ask these questions? Do I understand the claims of the gospel? The gospel message is that, that Jesus died for our sins on the cross, and we put our faith in him. He was resurrected back to show that that, that was an acceptable sacrifice. And if we put our faith in him, that we too can have eternal life. That he came to reestablish the right relationship between humanity and God. That God created us in the very beginning to have a relationship with him. Because of our sin, that relationship is broken. That what Jesus did on the cross by dying and resurrecting, that that paid the penalty of that sin and reestablished or opened a gateway or a a bridge or however you want to say it, a a way so that the right relationship with God can be reestablished. That he's the mediator of peace between God and man as the Bible describes. All right, that's what the Bible claims. And if you put your faith in Him, that you may die one day, but that you will be resurrected bodily and you will live eternally in heaven with God. That's the gospel. And that's what it claims. Do you understand that? That this is the claim of Christianity, that there is life beyond the grave in paradise with God through faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That's what it claims. And you need to understand what we claim to believe. Then you need to decide, do I trust those claims or not? You know, understanding the claims and trusting the claims are two different things. I'll be really honest. I'll be very uh, transparent. I think, I'm pretty sure, if, if this was a different question, if it says, do you understand the claims of evolution? I would say, yes, I understand those claims. I think I got what they're teaching pretty well. Do I trust those claims? No. And so understanding and trusting the claims are two different things. And you need to be able to answer both those questions very clearly. I understand, and yes, I trust, or no, I don't. I mean, that's what it comes down to. If you say I trust them, then there's another question you must address. And this is where it starts to get sticky for people. Because a lot of people will say, I understand what Jesus claims, and I believe in Jesus. But that leads to, are you willing, am I willing to turn from my way of living life, repent, and live as a Jesus follower? Am I willing to commit my life, my faith, all that I am to that claim. Yes, I trust it, but I don't want to just trust it. I want to live by it. I want to give myself wholly to the gospel in Jesus. And if you can say yes to that, then the last step is what Paul or what Peter said to the the people who heard his first sermon. Repent and be baptized. Dedicate yourself. Make it publicly known. I understand the gospel. I trust the gospel. I'm putting my faith wholly in the gospel to follow Jesus. Those are the most important questions you're ever going to answer in life. If you don't understand the claims, let me know. I'll walk you through it at a snail's pace to make sure you do. If you've decided that you trust it, then I encourage you to not only trust it, but to live your life by it, to turn 
to God. Repent from your own selfish way of living your life for yourself and live your life for God. Repent and be baptized. And if you want to make any of those decisions, let's please, please talk. Most important part, be the wise maiden who's prepared for the showing up of the bridegroom. That's our number one message. So am I willing? Oh, I was going to be funny. This is the big question. So it's the big question, right? Am I willing to turn my way, turn from my way of living life, repent, and live as a Jesus follower, really showing my faith in Christ? The second parable is the parable of the talents, and it corresponds with the be working. It's a story of a man who goes on a journey. It's a master who's going to go off on a journey. And so he calls his slaves to him. He calls his servants to him, and he gives them some resources, right? Uh, and one of them he gives 10, one of them he gives 5, one of them he gives 1 or 2, and one, uh, two one he gives 10, one he gives 2, one he gives 1. Anyway, he goes on his journey, and his servants, they go about, at least two of them, go about investing the, the resources they have, and, and they gain more. All right? One of them, he's scared of his master, so he buries it in the ground. Well, the master shows back up, and he's like, okay, let's get together. Let's, let's, let's see what you guys have been up to while I've been gone. Let's see what you've been doing, where you've been working, and, and let's see what, what, what's happened. So one who had 10 comes back and he has, he's earned 10 more. His master says, good job, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, then the one who had two, he came back and he got two. And he gets the same reward, right? Well done, good job, my good and faithful servant. Well, the one who had one who had buried it because he was scared of his master comes back and says, look, what you gave me. Here it is, you can have it back. And his master is not pleased. And he and he. And he kicks him out. He says, take it from him, give it to the other ones, and kick this one out into the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like, you didn't even do anything. You didn't even try to do what I'm concerned about. You just stuck it in the ground and just waited for me to show back up. And so what we learn from this parable, we shouldn't be idly waiting. We shouldn't be idly waiting. That the pews that we sit in, they're not the waiting room for God's return. Right? This isn't, this isn't the, the place where we're, oh, let's just hang out and we'll, we'll sing and we'll read and we'll just kind of wait. And eventually, either I'm going to die and go see Jesus or Jesus coming back and, and I'll see him that way. But it's very clear that the master does not expect us to be idly waiting for his return. He wants us to be working. He wants us to be doing his business. And so there's a couple of questions I want to walk us through. What resources have we been given? Now, one of the things I kind of dislike about this parable, not that I should say I dislike anything that God said, but one of the struggles I have in teaching this parable, maybe that's a much better way of saying it, is that we recognize the, the, the idea of talents. This was a sum of money that they were given, all right? But understand, the resources we have are much more than money, all right? Time is a resource that God's given you, right? God has given you time. I don't know how much. Some may be getting 10, 10, 10 some's getting five, two, and some's getting one, whatever that is in time units, but you have a certain amount of time. It's a God-given resource. You have, you have energy. 
You have mental energy. You're able to think. You have emotional energy. You can sympathize and be compassionate with people. And you have physical energy. You, have, you can do work. You can perform tasks, right? And these are gifts of God. And, and, and it, I'm sure a lot of you have been at places when you just can't think anymore, <laughs> you're tapped out on your mental energy, you're tapped out on your emotional energy, and you're tapped out on your physical energy, right? And the next day you get up and hopefully you've refilled your tank or you've gotten your tank filled somewhere. But this is a resource we have, these types of energies. Yes, there's material resources that God's given us, money and possessions and that kind of stuff. And finally, I think you have abilities. There's things that you can do that other people can't do. Some of you are singers, some of you are speakers, some of you are baby changers, right? Diaper changers. Now, don't make little of that. That's the most important job in this church to the baby who's getting it changed, right? Our importance is based not on how important the job is, but how important the person we're serving is, right? And that's what makes any job we do important. And lots of us have abilities, so here's some of the, so think about yourself. This is resource you have, time, energy, material possessions, and certain abilities and characteristics that can be used for God. So let me ask you this. Here's a question for you to ponder. Are these resources, your time, your energy, your materials, and your abilities, are they your resources or his resources? Who's the real owner of those resources because answering that question makes profound difference on what you do with them right that money in the story of the talents it wasn't the servants money they were stewards of it it was given to them by the master but make no mo uh, bones about it it always was his he just expected them to use his in the right way and so I would argue that all these resources we have are ultimately God's resources given to us to use for his business. And so what is the master's business? What is our master's business? Well, I think Jesus at least makes one part of it really, really clear. Jesus himself said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He said, this is my job. This is what I showed up for, to seek and to save the lost. Now, it's interesting, if you think about it, Jesus didn't come. He didn't say, I came to worship, right? I didn't come to go to synagogue. Now, did Jesus go to synagogue? Yes, he did. Did he worship? Yes, he did. Jesus didn't come and say, well, I came to pray so that y'all would know how to pray. Did Jesus pray? Absolutely, he did. Did he teach us how to pray? Absolutely, he did. And that was part of what he did, but he made it very clear my purpose, my business is to seek and save the lost. And so I would say we need to use all the resources, our time, our energies, our materials, and our abilities to be about the master's work to seek and save the lost. Right? It is sanctity of life. As much as we pray for babies, we need to be praying for the millions and millions of people who are dying, unprepared to meet the bridegroom, right? Uh, at our state level at the BRN, they have estimated that in Pennsylvania, South Jersey, the place we call home, 
over 14 million people who have not been saved. 14 million in the place me and you call home. There's plenty of work to do. We just got to be working. Here's one other question that I'd like, or a couple of questions that I'd like for you to ponder. How am I employing his resources to serve my master? How are you using your time to do the master's business? How are you using your energy to do the master's business? How are you using your material to do the master's business? And are you using the abilities that God's given you to be about the master's business? Maybe another way of saying it. What does my use of the resources say about who my master really is? Or what I think about my master. If you were to just take an inventory, here's where I invest my time. Here's where I invest my energy. Here's where I invest my material possessions. Here's where I give of myself and use my abilities. Who would that say your master is? My master is my work. Because my work gets all my time, all my energy, all my abilities. Uh, my career is where I pour in most of my resources, right? What does that say about who your master really is? Those are hard felt questions to understand and think, but they're important questions. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, From the whole body joined and held together, every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When we use our resources to do what the Master has told us to do, we build up the body. Now, we usually think, of, oh, that was grow. we grow the church. No, it builds up the body of Christ. It advances the kingdom and our master, that is our hope. That is our hope of one day hearing the master come and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've added to my business. You've added to my kingdom. Good job. And finally, he tells the story of the sheep and the goats. Story is that, here's actually, I want to read the first verse. But when the Son of Man comes, this is verse 31, in His glory all the angels with Him, and He will sit on His glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right, and He will put the goats on His left. It's like, we need to be aware. He's like, you need to be aware of what's coming. I am returning. I am going to sit on my glorious throne and I am going to separate the nations one from the other. I'm going to separate the faithful from the unfaithful. I'm going to separate the wise maidens from the unwise maidens. I'm going to separate the, the faithful servants who have been about my business from the unfaithful ones who haven't cared about my return. Over and over, this is the conclusion of all things. This is bringing it all together the separation of the sheep and the goats. And he said, here's what you need to be aware of. There are eternal consequences at stake. To the sheep, he's going to say, enter in. 
to your master's garden, right? Come for the, for the banquet that's been prepared for you. Enter into the banquet of the bridegroom. Come in to paradise, the gardens that's been prepared for you. And to the goats, he's going to say, depart, I never knew you, to the place where there's weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And that should always be on our mind. That this is why we are disciples. And this is why we want to make other disciples. This is what we want to be about. That this isn't just about some feel-good thing. That there is eternal consequences. I'm saved. Now what? There's an interesting verse I want to read. Let's each look not only to our own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which was in was which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Don't only look for our interests. Too often in the salvation and the discipleship process, we're like, oh, I'm just trying to get saved. I, I'm just focused on me, right? I'm, I'm just going to take care of me. I'm going to make sure I'm ready, you know, and, and that's it. And that's good. You need to be the wise maiden who makes sure you take personal responsibility. But you also can't just look to our own interests and say, I'm saved, y'all the rest of you figure it out. I think it's more like, uh, anybody know what that is? This is that little thing that the stewardess, you know, or the flight attendant, whatever the proper name of that is now, is, uh, you know, she... In case of the cabin loses pressure, right, there's going to be something that falls out of the ceiling. Please take it and put it over your mask and breathe normally. Like, that's going to happen. Then help your neighbor get theirs on. That's the idea of what the master's teaching us. Get yours on so you can breathe and you got oxygen. And then turn to those around you and make sure they're getting theirs on too. It's not just about us getting saved. He didn't save us just to save us. So there's three questions to consider as we look at Jesus' teaching as we wrap this up today. This is Jesus following 101. Am I ready? The question you need to answer. Am I ready? Am I the wise maiden prepared for whenever the bridegroom shows up? Am I ready? And I'd ask a number of questions. If you're not sure, if you can't say, I know that I know that I know, let me know. <laughs> because it's an important thing that needs to be dealt with carefully so that you understand the claims of the gospel, you can decide whether you trust the gospel, whether you'll turn your life to the gospel and follow Jesus. Where am I spending God's resources? Take evaluation of your life. What does the way I live say about what I believe? Where am I investing these God-given resources? For my own agenda? Am I building my own kingdom? Or am I building God's kingdom with his resources? Am I living now aware of eternity? Is the thing we do, the living we do day in and day out, how much of our awareness of eternity influences what we do each day or we just kind of sitting by doing the day in day out routine of life and eternity will get here when eternity gets here and we're not thinking about it enough am I ready 
where am I spending God's resources? Am I living now, today, aware of eternity? I hope that the Spirit will guide you through these thought-provoking questions because there's nothing more important than for us to be ready, to be working, and to be aware.